Oh, ah, oh. oh, do those lights mean it's, mean it's time? <laughs> okay. Well, I say we do this thing. You, whoa, whoa, are you guys ready? Oh, okay. Well, hey, uh, my name's TJ. I was a high school pastor for like 10 years, and then I got demoted. Oh, hi. I got demoted and started working with grown-ups, and you guys are better. So I'm really excited to be hanging out with you. And uh, <laughs> I'm a nerd. I love everything on this list, but I've never done something in this form. So I apologize in advance if this is a terrible idea and fails miserably. But we're going to try, okay? Uh, so I, I don't know the right way to do this. Uh, but let me tell you our goal for today, okay? We're going to cover whatever you want. My guess is we might have time for like three of these. And it really is a choose-your-own-adventure because you're going to get to pick which things we want to do. Maybe we'll get through more, I don't know. But the reason this stuff is valuable isn't just because it's entertaining or interesting, but because as we're talking about all this week, right, it's truth, truth, truth. God didn't call you to a blind faith. He created you in his image. He gave you an incredibly brilliant, complex thinking mind, and he wants you to use it and exercise it like a bodybuilder, you know? And so uh, I would argue that when we use our brain to critically think about the world around us, about doubts we have, about the truth in the Bible, God gets glory. So I think he gets glory from all the nerdy ADD stuff we're going to talk about today. So, uh, like I said, I, I don't know the right way to do this. We're going to try it a dumb way, and if it doesn't work, we'll try it a different way. <laughs> you should just shriek the thing that you want to talk about first, on the count of three, okay? No! Hey, wait, wait, wait! All right, all right, listen. One, two, three. Shriek it. Dinosaurs! Really? Dinosaurs? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Woo! Okay, let's do it. All right, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. Was that super loud? My bad. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job chapter 40. Ready, go. Job chapter 40. If you're not sure where Job is, it's kind of smack dab in the middle of your Bible. It's around Psalms. You can look in your table of contents at the very beginning, find a page number in your Bible. Job chapter 40. And when you get there, please go, yay, yay. Oh, you guys are tracking. This is good. Okay, so let me, let me give you a couple thoughts to set the foundation of what we're talking about right now. And again, we're going to try to just go minutes here, okay? Um, are dinosaurs in the Bible? Maybe. Some people argue yes, some people argue no. I want to show you the case that's made for the people who would say, oh, they're in there. The reason this is so fascinating is because, I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid, I had two competing ideas in my brain, and they were mutually exclusive and I didn't realize it, meaning they, they were juxtaposed, they didn't go together. Like at, at church, I was taught, you know, people were created by God, were special. God breathed his life into us as a unique creation account. And then in school, I was taught, well, there's monkeys, and they became bipedal hominids, Neanderthals, and then that beget its way to humans. And so there are these two different narratives of timelines, and one included dinosaurs at school, and, and the Bible didn't, and I didn't know how they went together. So this whole topic is fascinating. We don't have time to do all of it, but I at least want to show you the people who believe dinosaurs are in the Bible this is the context from which they make their case. Are you ready? Okay. I should turn there too, I guess. Well, here's one of the reasons that this is so interesting, okay? The book of Job, does anybody know when it was written? That's okay. Around somewhere, they estimate somewhere between 700 to 300 B.C., 
700 to 300 BC. Does anybody know when the science of archaeology became a legitimate, verifiable system with its own methodology? Any idea when people started looking into the dirt and going, we think this means this, and if we separate these bones from these bones, we can classify different animals? You want to guess maybe when that became a thing? 1800s, you guys. Like the first dinosaur that was, the first bone that was found in the dirt that people were like, we think this is a dinosaur was 1819. Before that, people would actually find dinosaur bones. Like in the 16th century, there are people noted who are like, we found this huge bone, but they're not classifying things yet. They're looking at them and they're like, we think this was a giant human, right? So it's not until 1824 that that first bone found and systematized and classified as a dinosaur becomes identified and given a name, 1824. So you have 700 to 300 BC where potentially God's talking about dinosaurs People don't even know to look in the dirt to dig for stuff until 1819, 1824, right? That's a span of 2,400 years, which if this checks out, if when you and I get to heaven and we go, God was talking about dinosaurs, think about how cool that is. It's almost like prophetic dinosaur prophecy, you know? Like God was talking about this stuff that we didn't even know existed 2,400 years before we even discovered it. That's pretty cool. All right. So anyway, Job chapter 40. Here we go. You're awake? Oh, me neither. I, sorry. Here we go. Okay. <laughs> All right. Job chapter 40. Look at verse 15. <laughs> it says, look at the behemoth. That sound, it just sounds like a big animal. Okay. Which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox. What do we know about this thing so far? Come on. Be a nerd. It's, it sounds big and it's a herbivore. Okay. Or sorry herbivore. What strength he has in its loins. This animal is connotated as being powerful, okay? This thing, by inference, is not going to have skinny giraffe legs. His tail sways like a cedar. What's a cedar? We're at Hume Lake Christian Camps in the Sequoias. What's a cedar? How, how tall is a cedar? That's right. Scientifically speaking, a bajillion feet tall. How wide is a cedar? That's right. Scientifically speaking, super duper wide, right? Is its tail large or small? Long or short? It has a ginormous tail and powerful legs, right? The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze. Okay, do you know that birds, in order to fly, their their bones are hollow, right? Little frail, like if you had a bone, like if you had a bird in your hands, and you were like, hello, baby bird, and you went, it would just crush because its bones are so weak and hollow, and so it's light and it can fly. Not this baby. His bones... (laughs) are huge tubes of bronze. His limbs are like rods of iron. This one's cool, verse 19. He ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. That word first in Hebrew, in narrative, in the way that they understood, right? The firstborn in a family, in a patriarchal society back then was understood to be the best, the most important. He was the one who was going to receive the inheritance. And whether you agree that that's how it should have worked or not, that's how society worked. And so in the culture that this is being written, they're saying first, most important. It was also a reference to largest, biggest deal, right? So the people who make the case that dinosaurs in the Bible, they're saying this, say, this says that it ranks First, among the works of God. That means it's the biggest thing out of everything that God created. So it doesn't have breakable tiny baby bird bones. It has huge tubes of bronze bones, a huge tail. It eats plants. Its legs are super powerful. 
It's the biggest thing ever created. And there are people who read this. Guys, there, there are Bible scholars, theologians, people who write Bible commentaries, and they go, hmm, according to my incredible intellect, this is probably a crocodile. I'm not trying to be rude, but you idiot, that's not a crocodile. So people go, oh, this is a hippopotamus. Does a hippopotamus have a cedar tail? No, you dummy. Sorry, I'm being very crass, but this is just, I love dinosaurs and they're wrong. Okay, some people were like, an elephant, and you're a little bit closer, like it's big, it's got powerful legs, but it, its tail is this long. Are you not reading the stinking words in here, you know what I mean? <sighs> Let's keep going. Verse 20, the hills, the hills bring him their produce, and all the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plant he lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. So he likes swampy places. Let's just get to know about his preferences. The lotuses conceal him in their shadows. The poplars by the stream surround him. When the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. So when he's standing in a giant rushing river, he's not worried. This is just my own, again, we're, we said we're nerds with ADD. My brain goes, well, then he has a low center of gravity. Because he can be super powerful and super tall, and if the river rages, he'd be like, ah, right? But this thing, the mass is probably down low. Long tail. Eat. Anyway, I'm, I'm being redundant. Can I show you some awesome pictures of dinosaurs? Okay, now listen, listen. Before we do this, some of you are in here, and the thing that you are the most, oh, that was risky that you're the most passionate about in your whole life <laughs> is the classification of dinosaurs. And you're like, well, the diplodocus the diplodocus and the blah, 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 blah. And if I say something and you're like, that is a wrong class, just cool your jets, okay? <laughs> the, the point that I'm making is, is just a cool general one. You probably do know more about dinosaurs than me. So just, just roll with where we're going, okay? Why don't we show, uh, let's do, there's a guy laying next to a big bone. Can we show that one? Okay, so this is a giant leg bone, and you probably can't read it, but that comment under there, it says, scientists found 45% of the skeleton of the dreadnoughtus. What, guys, when I was in, in uh, middle school, the coolest, biggest dinosaur was like the Brachiosaurus, and they debated, is this the Brachiosaurus or the Brontosaurus? We, <laughs> archaeologists were not classifying dinosaurs with this cool of names. Dreadnoughtus, including the most important bones, Drexel University paleontologist, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? This is his shin bone, Okay. Uh, let's go to the other picture of a giant bone in the dirt, please. This one says the dinosaur's tail alone was 8.7 meters long. Uh, in your brain, convert that with feet. I don't know, over like 20 feet. It's ginormous, okay? Could have clobbered any predator foolish enough to attack it. I'm getting bored of my voice. This is why we're only doing these for six minutes. Okay, um, and this is the last one. Click on the dino size chart, please. This is, this is just the point that I want to make you. Okay, we may not, they, they, archaeologists keep going, maybe it's this, a dreadnoughtus, or a titanosaur, or an argentinosaurus, or, like, the, all these names are awesome. But look at the shape of all the things. Who cares which one is the biggest? One of them is the biggest. That's the shape of it. And can, can we make the case that it lines up with the thing being described in Job 40? Maybe? 2,400 years before archaeology became a thing? I think that's pretty cool. Guys, I think God's pretty cool, and this is a reason for you to sing a little bit louder in worship because God deserves all the glory. You know what I'm saying? All right, that's Dinosaurs. That's it. That's our ADD presentation. <laughs> Round one. Boom. Okay. We did that in under 10 minutes. We're doing, we might, we might be able to get two more. Okay. That actually, I was surprised that I, that worked when you just shrieked. So cool. Keep, keep, keep quiet. Let's try it again. I'm going to count to three, and then... You just scream your head off, okay? One, 
Oh, yeah. Which, which one of these is your One, two, three, go. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, listen. I don't want to waste your time. This, we're going to do something even more ridiculous. I had a stage two in case that didn't work. <laughs> this is so dumb, and that's why I love it. I need every single one of you to raise your right hand, and on the count of three, you're going to point to someone who's going to be the representative for you, and only they get to shriek, okay? One, two, three, point. Who's everybody pointing to? That's your person. Now only they talk. Only they talk. You have 10 seconds to convince them of the next thing we should do. 10 seconds. Ready, go. Ready, go. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and silence! All right, I'm going to count to three. Only the shriekers are allowed to shriek, and maybe we can decide where we're going next. Again, this is how Choose Your Own Adventure works, guys. It's messy, but it's good, okay? One, two, three, shriek! <laughs> Are you, are you saying Adam and Eve? Oh, no. You with the hat, what are you saying? Evolution, God and stuff? All right, all right, all right, we'll go fast. Listen, as a reset, let's do a flute solo. All right, I think we're ready to begin. Whether you like it or not, we are doing evolution, God, and stuff, okay? And listen, we won't go super long. <laughs> Here we go. All right, the first thing I want to talk to you about, again, this is like three semesters of college courses at a Bible college just to get anywhere, and we're going to go, I don't know, four and a half minutes. So, here we go. Uh, I present to you, let's do the drawing, please, the bombardier beetle. I drew this just for you, Okay. And in terms of apologetics, the case that this is making for a divine creator, not just a nothingness that exploded into something by accident with no purpose and no value, is that the term used here is something referred to as irreducible complexity. And what this idea is, is that if evolution is a series of genetic permutations over time that have favorable advantages to that individual, that as you have a genetic permutation after genetic permutation, generations of this, the thing grows in complication, grows in information in its DNA and in its matter, and it becomes the next macroevolution species. The problem is that as we see microevolution, as we see any change with, even within a species, animals don't gain genetic information, they actually lose genetic information through genetic permutations, which means that if this really carried out, you would have animals becoming less complicated, not more complicated. So the idea of that single-celled organism in the ocean that became a sea slug, that became a fish with legs, that became a monkey, that became a you, that doesn't actually line up with what we see in the laboratory under the microscope. Genetic information is lost through genetic permutations over time. And even if that wasn't true, even if you could say, look, over a thousand generations, all these genetic permutations happened that caused change. Do you realize that the vast majority, like to the nth degree of genetic permutations that happen are actually negative to a species rather than positive, right? Like uh, I was at Hume 10 years ago and we were out in the lake catching frogs. I caught a frog with five legs and I named it Cinco. That was 
a genetic permutation, okay? Now, was that advantageous to the frog? You might be like, with one more foot stroke, he was able to run 20% faster than the rest of the frogs becoming the dominant frog of the future. No! He walked like this, and he, like, it, was, it was not good for him, right? The, other, the lady frogs probably didn't like him. He probably didn't reproduce. He, the line end with him. I know, we should write a tragic novel, the teen hit series about Cinco the Frog. It will replace Twilight. Anyway, we're getting... We're getting off on a tangent. My point is, the problem is in, in school, you're presented as everything is true, don't question it, I'm a teacher and I have a degree. And in church, you're presented this thing as this feels good, God loves you, and it's treated as a, a myth or a symbol or something that's good for you, but it's not rooted in truth. And I would argue that the difference between them is not quite that. It's not feel-good ideology at church and absolute fact at school. You actually have two competing ideologies. In fact, when, we, when uh, theologians or apologetists refer to the ideology that science prevails, that what you can see, taste, touch, smell, perceive is the only thing that's real, that's actually its own philosophy. That's not objective science. That's called scientism or naturalism. It's the idea that nothing exists beyond what you can perceive. The problem with that is the statement that I just made isn't a perceivable statement. You might hear the volume of my voice, but the statement I just made is a philosophical principle they can't be empirically proved in a laboratory. Like the whole thing implodes on us. Anyway, sorry. Whew, there's so much here and I love it. Uh, I showed you this cool picture and I will tell you why it's awesome. Um, irreducible complexity is the idea that this thing, couldn't, this thing that exists today couldn't have happened through a gradual series of genetic permutations. It, it would have died. It would have blown up. It would have not made it to the next gradual level because of how it exists. So... Let's go with the picture of the beetle with smoke. Okay, so this beetle has a flamethrower attached to its butt, and it has two glands in its booty that each hold a toxic chemical, okay? Now, if this thing had evolved, the case that theologians make, make for this is that the, maybe the lining of the membrane as it, it, as it evolved, right, would have been too thin, and those two chemicals existing inside the butt of this beetle would have made it like, hooray, adva advantageous genetic permutation, and then it gets to the two chemicals that are going to be its self-defense weapon, and they're not separated enough, and poof, it just pops, you know? Like, this couldn't have happened gradually. It was just created by an awesome God who said, I want you to marvel over a beetle with a flamethrower on its butt. In fact, when these two chemicals... Uh, combine outside of this beetle's body, they combine at a temperature of over 220 degrees Fahrenheit, which is higher than boiling water, and it's not just that it excretes this chemical, the thing is like on a turret, like 365 degrees, it can aim it, like, oh, predator, you're up there, boom, but it doesn't even just shoot in a single blast, it's like a machine gun. Scientists have documented this thing shooting at 500 pulses per second, just go, 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 let's go to the frog slide. This is a frog that tried to eat the bombardier beetle. This is a video that you can go see on YouTube, okay? The frog swallows the beetle. The beetle inside the frog's stomach goes, ha, 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 the frog's insides burn, and he spits the beetle out. Again, sing louder in worship tonight to the glory of God, okay? Uh, how are we doing on time? We've gone seven minutes. Um, you always want to talk about dating techniques, and I don't mean pickup lines. Yeah. All right, let's try it for one minute. Now listen, I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you how old the earth is. I'm just telling you again, use your brain, critically think. Some things are truth, some things are not, some things are in the middle. I think some things have presented, been presented to you as concrete, 
and there's a little bit more question in, okay? So just hear this as a skeptic, not as someone who's trying to tell you what I think is right and you should agree with me, okay? But as a skeptic, I loved Indiana Jones growing up. I wanted to be an archaeologist, and so I took some of those classes to start the process in college. And I remember getting to the dating techniques of how they dated the earth and fossils and all these different things going, what? That is not the bill of goods that I was sold in high school. This is not as bulletproof as it looks. Have you heard of radiometric carbon dating? Radiometric carbon dating, we're told, is the thing that dates organic matter, which means anything that you could look at, a dinosaur bone, the DNA, these things that were alive, organic, right? This is how we're dating and getting these millions of years and this, that, and the other thing. Maybe, except the problem is, do you know how far back radiometric dating can go and accurately, reliably date things according to the scientists who use it as a tool? What we're dating is the half-life or the rate of decay of carbon. And in that method, it only goes back 50,000 years. So when you hear this dinosaur was discovered and it exists 500 million, 920 trillion, quadrillion years ago, they're actually not using a system that dates the actual thing they're dating. They're using a relative dating system. The most predominant one is called potassium-argon dating. Big K, A, little r. Can you picture this from your biology class? And what potassium-argon dates is it dates inorganic matter, relative strata, like volcanic ash, that kind of thing, right? And so when they're in a dig and they see, here's a dinosaur bone, it's, we think it's older than 50,000 years, well, we can't date the dinosaur bone itself, we have to date the dirt or the volcanic material around it, okay, and maybe that, maybe that still checks out, but it's different than what I was taught, okay? And what if you have an earthquake and the stuff gets all mixed up, or a really excited gopher, and he's in there just digging around, moving all the dirt around, you're trying to date, date these layers of dirt like a layer cake, and stuff gets mixed up, there's just more margin than there is bulletproof, I would say. And some of these things that you encounter as a student of faith, and you go, oh no, that just completely ruins my whole worldview. God is a lie. I think you're getting pitched stuff a little bit too confidently, and that we should all be skeptics to the glory of God. That's all. I left you with more questions. There you go. <clears throat> um, you want to do one more of these? Well, sorry, I meant still, still in evolution. Give me 30 seconds. Can we do 30 seconds? Okay, have you heard of the Precambrian explosion? Oh, you have. Good. Let's go to the Precambrian explosion slide. Okay, I just took a picture of this book that I was reading. It's really interesting. Uh, it's called Icons of Evolution. If you're a nerd and you like to read, you should go read it. Uh, there's another book called Darwin on Trial. Also very interesting. Um, and, and what we're seeing here is the, the, the supposition is if evolution is true, what we should find in the archaeological record is the top thing, right? That we should find more species over time, more complicated animals over time, uh, and it should happen gradually like a ramp. But when we look in the archaeological record, what we actually find is the bottom thing, B. And scientists actually refer to this as a thing. It's called the Precambrian Explosion. And so with their dating techniques, they would say uh, 500 plus million years ago, all of a sudden there's just this burst of life where before there was nothing. And to me, that's fascinating because when I look at the Genesis account, and it says, all of a sudden, the God of the universe created life. Well, guess what we find? Do you see that little ramp on the bottom on the B? The order of life that comes into existence, that's noted in the, in the archaeological record, is the same order as the account in Genesis. It's plants and stuff first. And then it's, and then it's fish and birds. And then it's mammals walking on the land. And it doesn't happen, at least from the evidence we see in the earth, it's not gradual over time. It's like all at once. I don't know. To me, it's almost as if Lee Strobel is right in his hit book called A Case for a Creator. Mm. Okay, there we go. Also a great book worth reading. 
but read the student edition, not the grown-up one, because the student edition is shorter and more to the point and better. All right, one more? Guys, I should have figured out the right way to choose. Are you all saying Adam and Eve? Say, screech happily if you want Adam and Eve. Uh, Say boo if you don't. Guys, Adam and Eve's win. The Adam and Eve's win. Boo! Here we go. All right. All right. Wow, these are not the ones I thought you would choose. This is, uh, this is pretty fun. Okay, I like this one. In order to establish whether Adam and Eve are tr- were true individuals or not, uniquely and distinctly created by God, or are they the ancestors of cool Planet of the Apes monkey type people, which, man, if we get to heaven and that's true and somehow God is still sovereign, that's pretty awesome too. But let me make this case that Adam and Eve are the people who Genesis says they are, literally, and I want you to understand the consequences of ideas, if they are, or if they're not. But in order to do that, we have to go to a little bit of archaeology that uh, is only indirect about Adam and Eve. So let's do the Laish one. Laish. Okay, so I got to go to Israel on a study tour. I stood at this place, and I was like, oh, cool. If you look real closely, there's like little guys on there with, uh, you know the monkey from Aladdin, the little hat that he wears? They're wearing hats like that. This is a Canaanite ancient city, and The architecture is cool. It's made out of mud bricks. It's all accurate to what this civilization was. Just some true Indiana Jones stuff, right? The problem is, in Genesis chapter 14, the Bible is brought into disrepute because of this site. Let me read this to you real quick. Genesis 14, verse 14. It says, When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as, when I say this next word, you have to go, Here we go. Dan. The reason people looked at the Bible and they're like, it's wrong. It's inaccurate. It's because the city of Dan didn't even exist when Abram was alive. It came hundreds of years after when the tribe of Dan conquered this place called Laish and then they set up their place. So the archaeology, the the, uh, architecture that they found in the city of Dan was more Israelite. They had things called Solomonic gates and all this other stuff. The architecture was different. The building materials were different. And so they found the city of Dan. And the Bible writes about the city of Dan. And they're like, the Bible has its timelines wrong. They're talking about Abraham going to this place that didn't exist until hundreds of years after him. The Bible's a joke. But guess what? Then they found this place with Canaanite architecture from the time period that Abram lived, which fueled the implications of this. The thing that brought disrepute to the Bible once they unearthed it actually proved the Bible's legitimacy. And it didn't just prove the Bible's legitimacy. It means there are artifacts that substantiate truth, not just from the New Testament, but from the book of Genesis. All the way back to Genesis 14. We can prove that these are historically true. Which means, for the people who want to look at Adam and Eve and go, "Ah, that's so far-fetched. Like, I think the book of Genesis is a metaphor. It's a symbol. Well, now you have to ask yourself the question, where do you draw the line? Because if we can prove that events in Genesis 14 are historically true and accurate, then are events in Genesis 13 true and accurate? Are events in Genesis 9 true and accurate? Are events in Genesis 1, Adam and Eve, true and accurate? The next problem with with viewing Adam and Eve as metaphors or symbols are not real is that Jesus himself refers to Genesis and Adam and Eve. So if they're not real, Jesus is wrong, right? Paul in the New Testament will refer to Adam and Eve. The other problem, if we believe that they're a metaphor, is Adam and Eve is where so much of our Christian doctrine comes from. It's how we understand that we have fallen and are separate from God right? Genesis 3. It's how we make sense of the fact that everything that we touch is is full of sin. It's where sin comes from. 
Adam and Eve being true people created with delineation from the rest of the animal kingdom is where we get our purpose from. In Genesis 1, it tells, he tells Adam, go, have dominion over the earth. Multiply, right? He's giving them their purpose. We're also told that people are made uniquely, separate from the animal kingdom in the image of God. Adam and Eve being literal people distinctly created by God breathing his breath into them is where we as people get our value, our purpose, our qu creative qualities. It's because we uniquely, separate from the animal kingdom, have the image of God in us. There's theologians that talk about the trichotomy of the human, that we're different than animals, right? Because God breathed breath into our nostrils, his breath, his spirit. It's why we have a spirit, a soul capable of spiritual interaction with him, and animals don't. It's the separation. But if we're just a gradual, progressive, evolving thing, and all of us are blurrily connected in the animal kingdom, think about that. Our need for a savior becomes blurry. Our identity, our value, our purpose, our creative qualities become blurry. The whole, it, it kind of becomes a slippery slope for the entire Bible. Um, that's it. Wait, can I give you one more? This is just a verse. This is just a verse. Here we go. Romans 5.12. <laughs> Here's what it says. This is, uh, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Like literally, think about you and your experience. The way that you understand when you feel trapped by your own sin, the way that you understand when you're like, I can't get out of this. For whatever reason, sin keeps coming out of me. We make our own understanding of that from Genesis 1, from Adam and Eve existing as true, unique people. Archaeology proves it. Jesus speaking of them proves it. Our identity and our theology requires it. And so it's, it's a problem because I'll be honest, when we were talking about evolution and stuff too, it seems quaint and convenient. Like our brains want to reconcile what we're, what we're taught in biology class and the Bible. And you know what? Maybe we'll get to heaven and this seminar was a complete waste of time and that's true. What's interesting is these are not necessarily primary things or secondary things. If God used evolution as a tool to accomplish his purposes, and Jesus is still king, and we acknowledge that we have a need for him as a sinner. Maybe, maybe, I'm, you have seen my bias, I don't think so, but um, this is what I want to end with. Guys, when I was in, have you heard of Joshua Wilderness Institute? I did that a long time ago. We had a, a speaker come and talk to us, and the speaker basically said, raise your hand if you think when, when babies die, they go to heaven, and half of us raise your hand. And then he said, raise your hand if you think baby, when babies die, they go to hell. Raise your hand. And the other half of us raised your hand. And he said, those of you who raised your hand and said they go to heaven are wrong. Here's why. And he never presented both sides of the argument. His only goal, this, this like messed me up. His only goal was to persuade me to agree with him rather than thinking critically. Guys, if you're in here and you disagree with me or maybe you're like, that point wasn't well made or you're, I'm so excited. That was literally my goal. My goal is not for you to agree with me. My goal is that maybe you saw something in what we talked about today where you went, the Bible's not boring. God's not irrelevant. I have a curious awe and an interest in thinking critically to the glory of God. If that's what you walk out of here with, and, and maybe a memory of some cool pictures of dinosaurs, then I think this was worth our 30 minutes. Can I pray for you? All right, let's pray. God, we love you.
I thank you for these, for these students, for a generation who's interested in loving you with their mind. God, I think that's something that has been lost in the generations of Christians. And God, I pray as these guys grow, as they mature, as they, as they continue to increase in their understanding of you and, and the world, God, would you get glory from the way that they not just worship you in obedience, but the way that they worship you in truth. God, would you get glory from their intellect, from the way that they understand who you are, and as they use that to glorify you, thank you that you invite us to use our minds that you've given us and not invited us to blind faith. You're a good God. The earth proclaims your glory, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. And everybody said?